0: Love,
1: Hope,
2: Radio. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lee White.
1: Talk Radio, we're glad to be with you on this Tuesday, and we have an interesting show for you today. But before we get to our guest, I'd like to speak with my co-host, Lou Wise. I happen to be in Atlanta. He's up in New Jersey, so we've got this kind of virtual uh, booth uh, that we broadcast from. Lou, how are you today?
2: Okay, I'm great. Thanks for asking.
1: Uh, we
2: have a couple of points of uh, interest uh, before we start our show. Uh, Last week, our uh, postscript to last week's show was uh, uh, about collaborative robots and robot uh, uh, industries and manufacturing workforce. Uh, We had Jeff Bernstein from President of the Association for Advancing Automation, who's been in robotics longer than most robots have been. Uh, It's an incredible topic. It's very much significantly the way our industry is going. It's not an industrial revolution anymore. It's an industrial evolution. So I suggest that you go to mfgtalkradio.com and take a listen to Jeff Bernstein and Tim and myself talking about a very,
1: very hot topic. Who do we have lined up for next week? Next week we
2: have uh, Todd Birch, manager of Office of Apprenticeship Training
1: in the Connecticut
2: Department of Labor. Uh, and we're going to have two uh, special guests who went through uh, skill gap uh, retraining, apprenticeship, and so on, who had many challenges and were successful. Uh, I will, will be giving you that, the names of those two companies next week. Um, our news items today seems as though that uh, they finally got around to opening up the first nuclear reactor uh, in 23 years, and uh, a mere five billion dollars is four more under construction, so that brings it up for a total of 25 billion. I hope they work well. Um, The only problem, of course, is that nobody yet has really figured out an efficient way to get rid of the nuclear waste. You would have thought that over 23 years they may have come up with a solution. But we Americans like coming up with solutions to problems when they are already crises. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Today, one hour ago. Boeing signed a contract with Iran. The first contract for aircraft since 1979. $25 billion contract. And it had the U.S. government authorization and uh, uh, approval to make that contract. And there actually may be add ons to this contract. Uh, so, the Boeing employees, um, hope you enjoy your your ride with uh, new aircraft going into the books. Um, we'll we'll uh, see how that plays out over a number of years as well. Uh, Tim, back to you.
1: Today we're talking with James Anderson. He goes by Jim, Jim Anderson. He's content director for engineering.com, and we're going to be talking about the state of the machine tool industry, For those of you who are not familiar with the machine tool industry, machine tool is really a bellwether industry. What happens in that industry kind of indicates what's going to happen six to nine months out because people who make things with machine tools have to order the tools, get them in place, get the machine working, get the stuff on the machine to make it for it to be, Produced into either a finished good or a part going into a finished good downstream. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, Jim, what's the state of the machine tool industry these days?
0: Well, the machine tool industry is facing several challenges. Of course, uh, uh, what we, we have been c- calling offshoring or the threat of, of low-cost imported machine goods, manufactured goods, of course, is a major one. Another one is technological, and the technological challenge you're facing primarily is a, a movement toward cloud-based engineering as a service or manufacturing as a service, and this is going to require major capital outlays going forward to revamp uh, machining in small, and medium, and even large-sized job shops going forward.
1: Jim, this is a new concept to us. Uh, Explain in a little more detail, if you will, machining as a service. This is interesting.
0: For a typical manufacturing model, of course, it's based around the idea of making large numbers of the same thing, and that's how you get unit costs down, of course. You know, we think of Henry Ford going back to the the original notion of of assembly lines. And as we've automated the machine tool industry with pick-and-place robotics, and uh, five-axis multi-axis techniques, which means machines that can do many functions all at the same time. We've moved toward what we wanted was uh, what the Mazak company, for example, called done-in-one, the idea that you could put, say, a block of metal inside a machine tool, close the door, push a button, and then a computer program would execute a bunch of, of processes that would make a completed part all in one step. So, of course, the idea is for maximum productivity historically, you wanted to make a million, if you could, or as many as possible of that same part, so you could execute that same program in the machine over and over and over again, so sort of a quantity strategy. The future, and really it's the last 10 years or so, has been a movement toward trying to lower the cost of making smaller batches of more customizable things, and this was traditionally done by a, a sector of the machine tool industry called the job shop sector. And those were generally smaller and medium-sized companies who made a living by making shorter production runs of unique things, sometimes it was a one for a single custom thing or perhaps a dozen or two dozen parts, volumes that were low enough that they wouldn't be practical for larger manufacturing companies to handle. So that it generated an entire sort of, of, of industry or subcontracting industry around that. Now, in the future, as manufacturers have to produce shorter runs of more customized products, larger companies have had to adapt their technology to be able to do this, and so that puts pressure on the middle and smaller-sized shops who traditionally have sort of taken that role that wasn't interesting or wasn't profitable for the larger firms. And so we can see a shift ultimately where at the smallest level, the small and medium-sized job shops either have to do expensive upgrading of technology to become more profitable or potentially may disappear as the world becomes much more about customized sort of uh, one-at-a-time manufacturing.
2: Does the influx of uh, uh, robotics and now Cobotics uh, aid the small to medium-sized companies to be able to be more competitive uh, on the smaller runs? Or is that something that 3D printing would have a better effect?
0: Well, I think the 3D printing right now is, is frankly a little overrated. Uh, 3D printing is a process which has a lot of, of potential for producing things that can't be made in any other way. So, uh, I mean, many experts will say that 3D printing is the best way to make something that you can't make any other way. In other words, if you can't machine it with a machine tool, 3D printing is your answer. But in most cases, and, and most people who have ever seen a five-axis, for example, CNC mill, will be amazed at how fast it actually works. So for very, very few, very complex parts, 3D printing is the answer, but we're we're probably decades away uh, if ever, from a point in which it makes more sense to 3D print something from fine layers of powder compared to actually carving it out of a, of a solid block of metal. Now, on the, uh, the robotics front, its robotics has always been a challenge for small and medium-sized enterprises. It's, at a very large enterprise, of course, they tend to, to buy what they call cells, or they'll buy machining centers, which include a machine tool at the center, and may include conveyors, pick-and-place robotics to feed, load and unload those machines, and maybe even do some packaging right by the machine. And, of course, that's a multimillion-dollar process to do that. For the smaller shops, they've been challenged to be able to find affordable robotics that really make sense. And we're just seeing now with uh, some of the products uh, like Baxter, Rethink Robotics, iRobotics, some smaller pick-and-place robots in, the, say, 30, dollars $50,000 range, which will allow some level of automation for the small to medium-sized businesses. And that's mainly pick-and-place. Things that will be able to load the machines and unload them. That will improve the cycle time problem, cycle time meaning the amount of time the machine spends to actually make the part. So it's an intermediate step. But until we get low-cost, truly general-purpose robotics, the kind of thing that you could deploy anywhere in your small to medium-sized business for any task, it's going to be a problem for small businesses to keep up.
2: Well, take, uh, for example, the example you brought up about Baxter, and I believe the other machine they have is Sawyer. Um, those machines can run 24-7 in, a, uh, in, a, in an industrial assistant status, um, and the machines cost 30 to $50,000. Uh, you see a, a, an ROI return on that in less than a year. Um, that certainly has to do something for the small to medium-sized organization to be more competitive. Would that not be true? <laughs>
0: I agree completely. It's certainly true if you're costing the, the robot based on replacing a human attendant. So it's a matter of the, the, the robot is cheaper than actually paying an individual to load and unload the machine.
1: But in terms uh-huh. of productivity
0: and cycle time through the machine, the question is where's the limiting factor? Meaning is do we need faster machines or do we need a machine that has a larger cassette of available tools to, to do different tasks? So it's if the limiting factor in your production run is the cost of having individual load and unload component parts in the machine, and that might be true of a larger production run of smaller parts, then, yeah, then the Baxter or the low-cost robot is the low-hanging fruit that will reduce your unit cost. The problem comes in is when it becomes necessary to do larger, more complex parts. and a situation where the cycle time of the machine is relatively long compared to the time to load and unload it, at that point, the case of the pick-and-place robot gets weaker.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: God, it makes sense. Yeah,
2: uh,
0: yeah. yeah. Jim,
1: Jim, for decades, year by year, quarter by quarter, month by month, prognosticators and watchers of the industrial industry manufacturing would look at machine tool orders to see where manufacturing was going six, nine months, a year out. But with cloud-based uh, applications, is machine are machine tool orders tailing down to a different level? Is there a new normal here, where machine tool orders are never going to be back to where they were 20 years ago with peaks and valleys? They're just going to be more efficient.
0: Yeah, that is one factor which the the, the economists and uh, and you know some of the uh, uh, stock market watchers I think don't really pay attention to, and that is that modern multi-axis. I mean, uh, typically five-axis machine tools with associated robotics, they're not just more efficient, but they're much more capable than they used to be, and that means that when you buy a machine, it's no longer a specialty purpose thing. I mean, there was a time when uh, you might buy what you call a screw machine to produce a very small, specific product, and the machine was built to fill a specific order. So if you were making a little bracket for General Motors, you'd buy a specialty machine just to make that bracket. So if GM orders were up, you had to order more machines, and sort of the, that was, allowed machine tool sales to be a really good metric of the health of manufacturing. I think that's weakening now. It's weakening now for a couple of reasons. One is because the machines themselves become more versatile. It's possible to replace your order base from one customer to another. So the auto industry is down, but you find you can you can replace that source from, say, the appliance industry or aerospace. It's possible to keep production up without necessarily reinvesting in new equipment. So that, that's a critical factor. And the other factor, of course, is that, it Now, with the Internet, with cloud-based order and cloud-based order fulfillment, it's possible to shop for machine parts from anywhere. So the question is, if, if rather than buy a new machine tool, if you can outsource some uh, semi-finished or sub-assembled component from a Mexican source or perhaps a Chinese source or a Canadian source someplace out of the U.S., it's possible to bury some of that cost, if you will, in a way that doesn't show up in the machine tool sales. So I'm not sure that actual... Outright machine tool orders are a direct indication of the health of manufacturing. If it is, I suspect that it's a lagging indicator.
1: Yeah, it clearly looks like it's going to change in the future because of the efficiencies that we're getting out of new technology. So the the people who have watched it for decades may have to look at it uh, with a different point of view. Um, Jim, what else is happening in the machine tool industry that's uh, kind of changing its future from where it's been? Uh, you know, from dark, dirty, and dangerous to whatever modern manufacturing is today or tomorrow.
0: Yeah, it's far from dark, dirty, and dangerous anymore. It's one of those things where it's it, – in it talking about a lagging indicator, one of the things that do lag, I think, is public perception of, of machine tools, machining, and, and mass production as sort of a dark satanic mill. You know, people think of the 1920s, 1930s images of an assembly line. It's It's far from that now. It's highly computer-driven. And what's happening right. in terms of key trends right now are, is we're blurring the lines between design engineering and manufacturing engineering. In the past, of course, engineers designed a part or a product. Uh, blueprints were made, and then they were handed to a manufacturing engineer, and then someone then went and then actually made the part based on those drawings. Now we're at a point where you can imagine or render something on a computer and, and simulate it in 3D and then simulate the actual manufacturing process. So you don't just sort of have a 3D model we've all seen of, uh, of a widget or a part. You can actually simulate the way the machine tool cuts that part and practice and then refine more efficient ways to do it, avoid problems. Sometimes then go back to the design engineer and say, this part is too difficult to manufacture this way, and if you alter this design in a certain way, we can make it more efficient, cheaper, more reliable. So a major change is that we virtualize a lot of the preparatory process to mass production. So, A lot of the experimentation now is done on the computer rather than physically with metal. And the other major change is, is really cloud computing and the ability now to operate, control, monitor machine tools remotely from almost anywhere. So we're in a world now where it's possible, uh, and and some manufacturers are doing it now, it's possible for an owner of machine tools to simply download a file from a salesperson who's made a sale somewhere on earth, uh, clamp a block of metal in the machine, close the door, have the machine make a part, and then produce a finished part without the individual making it ever knowing what it is or even really who bought it. So it's at a point where we're we're slowly transforming machining and manufacturing in general into a service-based model rather than a traditional manufacturing model of, you know, we make cars, here are our cars, we set up an assembly line, we build them, then we sell them. So it's at a point now where you're, you're almost selling turnkey packages of concepts, of ideas. You're selling designs. We're suggesting the customer alterations in the design. And we're implementing them with running changes as we go in smaller and smaller lot sizes, down to a few single custom objects. It, it really is revolutionary.
2: Let me ask you this, uh, in in regards to the marketplace in accepting these changes, uh, you know, we deal in the forging industry, for example, and these forging, uh, the owners of many forging companies are family-owned, even though some of them are very large. uh, They have a slow mentality to make change uh, because we do it the best the old way. Uh, we're talking about, and Tim and I have been talking for years now with people with new technology, drones, 3D printing, uh, you know, pilotless planes, uh, drones, and uh, now they have uh, uh, driverless cars. And uh, Is there much resistance in the small-medium-sized world aside from economics?
0: Well, I think yeah. you're referring to the, the, the cultural shift there. And, you know, it's interesting you brought yeah. up forging. Forge, forging is historically because it's sort of a black art. It's one sort of the last, like, vestige of, of sort of blacksmithing of type, uh, uh, you know, techniques out there. And, of course, the neat thing about forging, one of the things I like about forging is it's, it produces properties in, in metallic forged products which are almost impossible to duplicate any other way. If you need to refine grain structure or basically if you need really, really high-strength components, you know whether it's wing spars or hand tools, it's really difficult to replace forging. I think that's the sort of – I've kept that – preserved that industry in the form that it's at now. No one's going to replace, that's, I think, a forged wing spar, the 3D-printed part
2: absolutely, uh, in, in my lifetime. So I, this, I, I that, agree.
0: Yeah, and that protects that industry in a sense because, of course, the proprietary knowledge built up over you know decades of, of experience there isn't going to go away. And forging, right. of course, also a little different. It's not really a mass production process in the sense that we know. Drop forging of hand tools is. Uh, of course, the larger part, open die forging, is, is, is likely never going to be uh, mass producible like that. And, and in terms of computer control, uh, I believe it will be less computer controlled than other things, but I'm looking for simulation to basically uh, uh, still play a role in forging where we look at refi- refining metallic grain structures, calculating basically how much force, how many hits. Specifically closed-eye right. forging, I think you're going to see computer simulation play a real factor. But, you know, is there mm-hmm. is there a place for it in forging? Yeah. Uh, is there fear out there of, of the future, fear of change? Uh, I'm not I'm not seeing fear per se. I'm seeing reluctance to dive in with both feet in what could be very expensive, heavily connected cloud-based technologies until there's really a customer base that can support it. So I think in, I like- uh, customers are –
2: no, I was going to say I have been in uh, several of the larger Ford shops that have implemented these uh, movable on-track uh, robots that will take a uh, semi, uh, an ingot out of a furnace, wheel it over to the hammers, start hammering it, take it out from under the hammer, take it back into the furnace and heat it up again, and it's all done with a robot. Uh, but there's a, there's a operator inside this unit that drives it back and forth. And basically he's doing the job of six people and he's in there, you know, playing this, uh, video game almost to produce these forgings. And, uh, that's about the extent I would think, uh, open die forgings will, uh, see, um, uh, automation to that extent. Um, because you're right, you can't replace, you can't make the part totally automated uh, in, in some kind of a robotic fashion. So I, I agree with you there.
0: Yeah, I quite agree. And it's where I see a any potential risk on the forging side for the larger guys is probably on the aerospace side, and we're looking at the the Boeing Dreamliner project, of course. And if composites really uh, take over in a big way, that could reduce the um, the need for large aerospace forging. But, you know, the jury's still out because we know that the composite structures work. We don't know is that will they work 20, 25 years from now, and what, what ultimately is the ultimate airframe life of, of, of the plane.
2: Right, right. All well, I know is I wouldn't want to be landing in an airplane that has uh, a non-forged landing gear.
0: it <laughs> will be a long time before <laughs> we see that, I think. I,
2: I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. Uh,
1: Jim, questions for you. Know, Lou and I talk about on the show with uh, different aspects of the manufacturing sector, the challenges with the skills gap and where they're going to find qualified people. Uh, I'm sure engineers, or I would think engineers, are, are a little easier to find than maybe machine operators. But in your experience, what is the uh, machine tool industry experiencing in terms of skill gap?
0: Oh, uh, uh, Tim, it's terrible. It's a, it's a serious problem. It's the number one problem I encounter when I visit uh, shops large and small. Uh, the skills gap is a major problem, and you're right. It, it's it's a perception problem in the sense that we, we live in a world now where parents, of course, uh, are, are not encouraging their children to, to go in and do technical trades in particular. And I I think more than anything else, I think there's a problem with the way that we structure education in general here. And I've, I've visited many, uh, many firms in Germany, and they've got a better handle on this, I think, there. There's a system in Germany where if you could start off as a machinist or a tool and die maker, and if you show a particular aptitude at that point, uh, their corporate structure and education structure is such that you can go on and become a mechanical engineer. You can qualify if you're so inclined, and it's done through work co-op programs at the same time. So they regard Mm -hmm. technical training as part of a continuum of training. So it's possible out of Daimler-Benz, for example, you could start off literally as a a machinist on the floor, and you can end up CEO of the company if that's your particular aspiration and, and your capability. We still have a more traditional old-school system here where we're, we're, we still regard a machinist as a machinist and an engineer as an engineer, and one goes to college and, and the other one doesn't, and, and that's it. And on one hand, I think that's, that really holds back this notion of, of starting off on the shop floor as a, a way of progressing a career. By the other hand, there some who argue that's created a, an entrepreneurial spirit in America that doesn't exist in Europe. In a sense, if you're a machinist or toolmaker with a great idea at this point, you know, if you know you're not going to become a CEO of the corporation, maybe the answer is you strike out and you, and you open your own business. So it's the simple, the short answer to your question is, yeah, it's a serious problem at all levels. Uh, the solution to the problem, I think, barring some kind of a major attitude change towards skilled trades as a career option, maybe some uh, revamp of how we train engineers and think about going more toward a, a European style apprenticeship model, I think.
2: But here several weeks ago, uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio was invited to participate at the German House, uh, which is part of the German Consulate in New York City, and they had, and I don't remember the name of the event, but it was uh, cross-collaboration between Europe, uh, Germany specifically, and the U.S., discussing... Uh, apprenticeship programs discussing uh, the dual education system that Germany has where they re- require that students take two days a week of vocational education and then three days a week of uh, uh, liberal arts and so on. And at least this way everyone gets an opportunity to make a proper decision uh, without the, the input of the parents who says, I, I want a college grad in my, in my family. Uh, a $200,000 debt, and then the kid comes home to move in because he can't get a job as uh, a social worker or a, a low-level mm-hmm. engineer. Uh, mm-hmm. Their system is working. The uh, unemployment numbers for kids between the ages of uh, uh, 18 and 24 is 7%. The same age range here is 28%. So there's obviously something Very different that we're doing, and they're doing it better and uh, more correct. As a matter of fact, that show uh, is on ManufacturingTalkRadio.com if you have interest in listening to it. It was a a, a two-hour event. Uh, I think I was in a room with some of the smartest people in all of the United States and uh, uh, Germany. Uh, We had NJIT there. We had uh, several universities uh, from Germany there. And uh, some very interesting, spirited, uh, well-educated people talking about a serious problem. The question. Well, I, I that would
0: be a very interesting discussion. Yep.
2: Yeah, it, it was it was phenomenal. It was absolutely phenomenal.
0: And, and, and
2: uh, you brought up the cost
0: issue, and that's really important too. Which is, it's it's not just a question of of you know can we find enough people interested in, in technical trades, but the staggering cost of post-secondary education is reaching a point now where. I can see young people who are who are pretty smart. They're going to want to game the system. When you game the system, if you say I'm going to come out of this uh, this process with fifty or hundred thousand dollars in debt, I need to see a return on that investment. So there's a risk, of course, then that they may start going to short-term career thinking in terms of you know how am I going to pay this off, right. rather than thinking about That's what right. represents a, a great fulfilling career that that will will push all the buttons. Absolutely. So it's cost is an issue; that has got to be looked at.
2: Yeah. I, I just met an individual over the past week who is a uh became a welder. He's twenty four years old. Uh he's earning seventy thousand plus and he's now uh going for underwater welding certification and mm-hmm. when he gets that and I think it takes a couple of years to get that, he will double his income.
1: He right
2: That's exactly right. And he can make 150000 a year plus benefits, uh, and he's out and out and about underwater having a good time and making a lot of money with no debt. Yep, yep.
0: Uh, Lou, I, I'm a case in point. I, uh, although I've been to college, uh, I, one of the ways I paid for it was working as a millwright in an auto parts plant. And uh, mm. there's not a day goes by in my day-to-day job, which I don't draw on the experiences and some of the things that I learned in keeping assembly lines you know, up and running in a factory. It's absolutely mm. valuable. And I think we don't do enough to get uh, uh, not just engineers but personnel in general out looking at the way things are actually made. I, I think you should get accountants down there looking at the line occasionally too. I think there's, it's, 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 it's just invaluable if you want to create a manufacturing economy that's productive. But more importantly, I think we've just got to get the message out to, uh, to, to parents especially and, and to their kids that it's far from a dark, dirty, and dangerous world out there. I've, uh, I have personally seen the aerospace industry job shops that have tool and die makers who come to work in a jacket and tie because they don't actually right. physically touch anything on a machine shop anymore. Right. They monitor it remotely right. from, from an air-conditioned office. So it's it, the sky's the limit, really, within manufacturing right now if we can get past these old perceptions.
2: Um, I think it's going to have to happen because we have the gray hairs retiring and getting out, and we're losing all that brain power, and we have a smaller population group coming in, which will only make our job and skill gap issue even bigger, that I really think that a dual dual educational system or some kind of a national or even a state the, you know, national, you're lucky if you get anything done by them. But if you do it on a state level to institute um, the policies where uh, it's mandatory that you take a certain amount of vocational activity uh, career paths. I think it only yeah, Lou, makes sense. Yeah, I think sense. that would be ideal. Yep.
0: Yeah, Lou, I, I think from, that would be ideal.
1: Jim from the uh, – an economic standpoint, uh, a forecasting standpoint, manufacturing seems to be trying to recover from the 2008-09 Great Recession, and it, it's not quite there yet, but it, it, at the moment it seems to be wavering. Uh, the forecasts are for about 1% growth in 2016. From your perspective, where do you see manufacturing going over the next couple of years? And I realize you're, you're not an economist, but I I'm just curious what engineering.com sees in terms of what it's hearing from their readers and customers about where manufacturing is going for the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, Tim, there's a great deal of disinformation out there, and I think it's based on, on stats which are produced by people who are on the Wall Street side of the equation. You know, there's a, a really great uh, paper that's available on the uh, NIST website, and it was issued by uh, Mike Hicks and Servant Davyagi from uh, Connects U.S. Indiana and Ball State University. And what they did is instead of looking at things like manufacturing employment, they looked at, at, at a manufacturing production index that worked out productivity. And if you get a trend line that goes back to, what, 1920 to the present day at this point, you see a steady and upward climb in improvement. So I think the one of the problems are that we, we measure manufacturing by the number of people employed in it and assume that that's, that correlates with a decline in manufacturing activity. The reality is is that the, this automation that we're talking about has, has definitely caused some layoffs on the, the line, but overall manufacturing productivity is as high as it's ever been, and it's climbing. So we're extremely bullish on manufacturing going forward. What we expect to see, however, is that the days of uh, an auto plant opening up someplace and hiring three or 4,000 people to, to work in it are probably gone. So I think what we're looking at is a world where reshoring – I know Harry Moser at at the Institute has worked hard to to look at the reshoring issue. I think reshoring, in a sense, won't be a factor because uh, when we reach a certain critical level of automation, it really doesn't matter where you make things anymore because there there are just very, very few people working in a lights-out factory at all. So your motivation then is to get close to your, your end-user market. So I think over you know, the next two, three years, what we're going to look at is more of what we think of as reshoring, which will actually, I think, simply be expansion of the manufacturing base you know, within the U.S. And I think an expansion in productivity again and more overall production, but we're not going to see that reflected in em- employment rates. As it stands right now, if you want to buy a new five-axis machine tool, some more sophisticated tools there, you have to wait. You can easily wait six weeks, uh, a couple of months, to get a new machine tool because they're working full speed. Companies like uh, Mazak Corporation, for example, down in Kentucky, I mean, they've added 100,000 square feet to their production processes, and they can sell every machine they make. So the demand is there, and the productivity is there, and the manufacturing is uh, I see is going nowhere but up, with the one wild card being what happens to the global economy in general with massive debt overhangs and some of the issues in the banking and and financial system.
2: Here's an issue, though. uh, You know, we we talk about reshoring and – uh, we've had Harry on our show, and we've met him many times, a very bright guy. Um, I, I just, since we heard about reshoring about two, three years ago and really got in, in, into it and understand what it is, bringing more jobs back to this country right now when we have a skills gap, doesn't that just complicate matters more? You know, we bring back a 1,000 jobs. We're already short three and a half million manufacturing jobs in this country. And now we're going to bring back, if Harry were to say it, maybe millions. You know, I don't know. But we bring back half a million jobs back to this country. Where are you getting the workers? Yeah, and that's a critical
0: point. I think that if if ever there was a – uh, something that constrains the reshoring movement. It's exactly that issue more than anything else. I don't think it's yeah. about cost anymore. I think I think it's about the ability to get qualified people. I think what's going to happen is we're seeing it very soon now. We're going to reach a critical technological level of automation where you simply need so few people who actually operate your lights out facility at this point that, it, that that just won't matter. Now the critical people we're talking about the people that know how to service and know how to how to work the robotics. Right. front office personnel and I think we 're going to get around that problem by virtualizing that process too so what I expect will happen is, is that if you can 't find people that can operate your robotics you 'll contract for that service through the cloud. you may have someone from another country halfway around the world for example who monitors and, and adjusts your your automation on an ongoing basis or and I think a, a potential big growth area here will be outsourcing of the control of your manufacturing process. So it will reach a point, I suspect, where in the future when you buy a robot to automate your process or a new machine tool, you might not just buy the machine tool, you might buy the capability to operate the machine tool as well. I think that will be supplied by the vendors of the equipment. So in the end, what we'll do is we'll sort of uh, make the manufacturer, in the end, really an individual that has a building that houses equipment and then designs and sells product but really doesn't have much to do with the middle of it anymore. And uh, so we could see a true globalization in that sense.
2: Right. I mean, it's very similar to having pilots in Atlanta dropping bombs out of drones uh, 6,000 miles away. Uh, Exactly. You don't have to have have the feet on the ground uh, to do that. Uh, Exactly. And And it works in both directions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yep it means that an American indigenous expertise in this area can then reach out around the world and go in the other way. So I can see a world in which a Chinese manufacturer that can't find qualified people contracts with American engineers and technicians who operate remotely out of the U.S. to, to supply those services as well.
2: Well, I think also a uh, proper uh, ed- and educated immigration system uh, would really improve our lot also by allowing – uh, more people in the country who have talents, uh, either engineering or uh, uh, machine tool, or having people come in with the right skills could also help our situation because we are clearly at a deficit in manufacturing and you can't you can't sell a product if you can't make it. And if you don't have people and you don't have the right people, you're not going to grow and it, it's un- it's unfortunate. And we do have pools of people that we could be using, i e women in manufacturing. you know we're we're seventy thirty on that. Why don't we ha- why aren't we bringing more women back like we did in the second World War? you know uh, wh- What was her name? Um, uh, Rosie the River. the River, Rosie the River. Well, now we've got uh, Wendy the Welder, and you know, Wendy the Welder makes seventy seven thousand a year second year on the job and she was a young girl. She didn't have terrific looking nail polish on her nails, but you know, she was she had a great job, she enjoyed it, and uh, she filled the function. There are many women out there that we can be using filtering into the manufacturing sector. And that's also is not encouraged.
0: Yep, it's very true. It's funny you mention it. It's on because uh, in some areas like chemical engineering, you frequently see a 50-50 ratio of men to women in, in engineering education. Right. Mechanical engineering or tooling, it's, it's in single-digit percentages. And some of that has to do with the culture out. I know we uh, we have an education writer, Megan Brown here, is covering this issue specifically in that in some cases uh female engineering students identify engineering culture as something they're not comfortable with as being very sort of masculine and male dominated. And they tend to right. then move off into management ranks. So they'll they'll often graduate with uh, with a qualification, but then not actually use that in uh, on the shop floor in manufacturing. And I agree, I mean right. we had a point where B twenty nines were built largely by, by women. And it did an outstanding job. So there's a there's a 70-80 year history, longer of of capability on the shop floor.
2: And it's interesting Correct. how that
0: just sort of has uh, disappeared. I think part of that might have been a, uh, back then a, a post-war desire to get back to to quote-unquote normal,
1: you know, with mm-hmm. a, a wife mm-hmm. wife
0: as homemaker and out of the factory. But the uh, as I think as the automation reaches a point where it's less and less about getting dirt under your fingernails and more and more about computer simulation and modeling there should be no barrier that way. So I don't think it should be a cultural barrier, but it's, you know what, that's something which I think needs a lot more study and a lot more research because uh, it's already at a point now where there's really no reason why there shouldn't be a huge number of women in the industry. And oddly, I also see that in Europe. When I, when I go to Europe, there yeah. very few places. Yeah. I see more women, but I certainly don't see what I would regard as a, an equitable mix of 50-50. So there's something cultural that, that in the whole Western world is going on there, and that, I think that deserves some study.
2: I was in uh, China several times investigating uh Ford shops in China.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
2: would say that on the shop floor there is probably 30% women. Mm-hmm. On the shop floor at a forging yep. hammer. They had yep. arms that I wouldn't want to tangle with. <laughs> these were these were tough cookies. And yeah, in I China all over from the communist era. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There are no communists in China, only capitalists. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. but they don't know it. They think they're communists. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'll say one thing though. I've seen some. I've not had a chance to shot on, to visit it in up uh, up close and personal. But from what I've seen of forging yeah. operations in many parts of the world, uh, they OSHA is not part of the part of the plan out there.
2: <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, <laughs> I've been uh, in forge shops since. I've been in Ford shops in India and they wear sandals in the Ford yep. sh- shop. You know, it's, yep. it's, 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 there's no OSHA. They don't know what that is.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and that's interesting point because that's a cost which American manufacturers have to bear, which is compliance costs for, for health and safety are considerable. And it's one thing I've always wondered about this is that uh, in, a, in a so-called free trade environment is it why is it not acceptable to look at what those costs are and then apply those costs as a selective duty on imported similar goods until the importing company or the exporting company overseas can demonstrate that they meet the same standards and they meet the same standards pull
2: that, that duty off. Well, you need to have politicians who give a care uh, other than the next election. And I don't mean to sound – Bitter and political, but the fact remains that Churchill said it Americans will always get things right eventually.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, after we tried everything else. Yes, yeah, yeah. After we tried <laughs> everything
2: else. Right.
0: Well, the immigration so, issue, I, I think it's going to be
2: big.
1: Yeah, I, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Probably as big as
2: campaign refi- reform. Mm-hmm
1: in terms of uh, the machine tool industry and the Internet of Things, we always hear a lot about the Internet of Things, things being somewhat nebulous, but what's really happening in that industry? Are we going to really put sensors on every hammer and screwdriver, or is this just going to be uh, more big data coming from more machinery where we have higher levels of automation?
0: Yeah, Tim, it's funny you mentioned that. I just hosted a webinar yesterday on that, that that subject matter and you could see a difference in attendees between the small and medium sized machining operations and the bigger companies. The smaller ones saying, Look, you know, uh, what is this? I mean it's just it's over the top, it's way too much, it's more information than I can handle. And you brought up a good point, which is that the again, the the, the popular press are talking about literally a you know, censoring every button on your, your shirt. And I don't think we're ever going to see that because I think there's, a, there's an optimal level of information that you can feed back. Now, in the machine tool industry, really, they've had the Internet of Things for about 30 years, and people don't even realize this. Uh, the difference was it wasn't wireless. It was connected by Ethernet cables through the ceiling of the, of, of the factory. Things like uh, force sensing of how much effort it takes for tools to, to make a cut. Uh, detection of broken tools or misaligned tools, uh, this sort of thing. That this stuff is really—it's been been automated for for some time, but it's not been automated with any standardized kind of a, of a platform. So I think the on the machine tool side of it, the notion that you're going to have sensors all over the place that detect the performance of the machine tool—that's incremental. That, that's not going to surprise anybody. So that, that I think that will be adopted relatively easily. The notion of putting sensors on literally everything and then needing a supercomputer to manage the, manage the data—that's the big question. Which ultimately is, is that the, the, the question no one's asking, and really no one's answering, is what is the minimum data set that you need to completely control a process? And what Internet of Things promises to do is to give us sensors everywhere in everything and then overwhelm us with this information. Uh, part of that, I think, uh, if you want to be cynical about it, may be that the data analytics companies may be wanting to sell. Uh, AI-based systems that let you process or manage all that information. For the small to medium-sized shops at this point, uh, beyond uh, performance monitoring of the machines for preventive maintenance purposes or, or predictive analytics to predict machine failure, it's difficult for me to see how much more sensing that they can implement than they already have. And uh, it, it will be interesting to see going forward. I mean, ultimately, we're looking at a world where, Uh, If you have machinery driven by electric motors, they're already talking about using force uh, sensing devices on the electric motors that infer motor life and failure based on things like heat rise, the amount of torque, and motor RPM. And ultimately, that, I think, will lead to a point in which the vendor of the equipment will be notified through the cloud that a failure is imminent, and they will send a repair person over and fix that without you being the factory owner even knowing it's going on. So I think it may, could ultimately evolve like it has in the airplane engine business where you can buy jet engines for your airliner or you can, you can buy the power by the hour, as they say, and then basically have another outside party just handle all the maintenance requirements of the thing at the same time. So that's, a, that's part of what I think of as manufacturing as a service where ultimately you outsource everything about the operation of your, your production equipment, but you, then you rely on on sensor nets to make sure that everything's being watched remotely for you. So, you know, is it going to happen in the future? Probably. Small to medium-sized shops, I can't see it in the next decade or so, but I could be wrong.
1: Well, it's interesting because you bring up big data, and everybody's talking about big data as if it's a, it's a good thing. And mm-hmm. now the latest is, no, it's just a lot of data. What are you going to do yeah. with it? How are you going to manage it? Yeah. And the, the small companies almost have to be terrified of it. Is that what you're hearing or seeing?
0: Yeah, I, it's, I certainly get it. It's, it's rarely expressed as outright fear, but there's, ex- there's some confusion out there, and there's a lot of skepticism. I think you hit the nail on the head, which is one thing I think small, medium-sized manufacturers know, that sometimes the big ones don't, is that the human factor is the limiting factor at this point. If you've, if you've got a, an owner-operator and he's got a dozen machines to crank it away on the shop floor, it's not a question of a lack of information or data about the performance. It's a question of dealing with problems as they crop up in the fastest, most efficient way possible. And you're right. If we bury decision-makers with a torrent of data, uh, most of which is not relevant to solving the problem at hand, you slow the process down even further. So if it's a question now of the tool broke, and the tool sensor on the five-axis machine says, okay, you have a broken drill, that's the immediate problem you know how to fix. You go and you replace the drill. The new system now may turn around and say, all right, well, the drill broke, and it broke because that we added excessive torque to this part or the, it's, the electric motor overheated. And so the question at this point is, all right, so now you have more information to deal with, which suggests something bigger about your process or your machine. And you can go back and refine your cutting paths, for example, on, uh, to optimize the process to reduce that incidence of that breakage. But that's a long-range, long-term, long goal. And the short goal is you've got to get that part made and get it out the door, and that means going out there and then changing out that part, changing out that drill bit. So it's a situation where there's there's going to be a use for it for sure, but someone's going to have to decide what are the problems, the fires you have to put out now, what are the things you, you, you need to do later. And that adds another layer of bureaucracy in many operations, and you're going to need people at some point to make those calls for you or hire outside consultants automated or or human to do that for you. So I agree. I'm not sure that necessarily having information about every aspect of your plant is going to make you necessarily more efficient, you know, in the short to medium term.
2: Well, I'll I'll give you the reality of that, uh, you know, on the ground. Uh, We have uh, three or four major programs that monitor our manufacturing and monitor our marketing and monitor our uh, day-to-day operation. And we have, uh, we've been slowly putting this information uh, online for the last 10 years, and it's gotten so convoluted and so much data that you now have to make a certain amount of time in your day just to study the data yeah. then make a determination as to what the data means and then either make a change or don't make a change, and then the end of the day comes and uh, yep. the next day you've got to start all over again. Oh, where the hell did I leave off with that? The, the amount yep. of information is voluminous, absolutely yep. voluminous.
0: Yeah, Lou, I and think that the reason that has started is because of the, the sensor folks. I think that the, on the technology side is that the sensor manufacturers have, have come up with a vast amount of new product that they've, they've put into the industry, but I think what's lagged behind, as you mentioned, is the analytic capability or the, uh, the software that filters out the wheat from the chaff and just sends you the things that really matter and not every bit right. of information about everything. Yep.
2: They give you every bit, every kernel, every lick, yep. click through, every uh, – I know things about our visitors that I, don't, I can't understand how they know the information. How do they know that this purchasing agent is also a technophile or he's a camera yep. buff or he's uh, a, a news junkie? But all that information comes out of these programs – I don't know what it means for me. Uh, Should I go after the guy who uh, enjoys cutting his lawn on Saturdays because he also has time to go onto the computer and look at manufacturing talk radio? I mean, it's hard to determine what the information means.
0: Yes, and they, they may have created a market inadvertently uh, for another sort of business in just doing exactly that, is trying to make sense of this stuff and feeding a simplified you know, uh, uh, executive summary of this information to you on a daily or even hourly basis. But that's an yeah. interesting point because that is a cost which goes into the manufacturing process, which needs to be quantified. But it's not a cost which occurs in the shop floor. It's a cost that occurs in the front office. So how that cost is apportioned and how it's divvied up within the overall manufacturing process is going to be interesting because it, you could think of it as overhead or you could roll it into the actual production per part production cost. And I think it's going to be not inconsiderable, that cost. So it's interesting to see how the industry pays for it ultimately.
2: They first have to learn the full effects of writing it, writing out the information. You have to do it first and get yep. the information see if it's worthwhile. Then if it's worthwhile, now you've got to figure out the cost and find out that, oh, my God, this, this is costing thousands of dollars a month. Just for me to find out that um, I had six more click throughs uh, from this person than I did last month. What does that mean?
0: Yep. That's
2: yep. so uh, yep. interesting.
0: Yep, a very good point, Lou. In that the thing that's also often overlooked is that human beings, skilled operators, are actually an incredible resource. I mean, uh, if you look at the forging industry, for example, uh, uh, you get good operators there who, who can operate by feel, they operate by the feel of vibration, operate by sound and can feed back really valuable information that way. And to, to, re- to duplicate that electronically requires a network of sensors that are inferring information by things like temperatures, pressures, perhaps acoustically, you know, measuring shock waves, and it's very, very difficult for them to actually, the sensor net, that is, to produce the same level of information as a skilled operator who can turn around essentially and say, you know what, we're not hitting it hard enough.
2: Well, not only. Uh, I've seen it in Ford shops now. It used to be that the, the blacksmith could look at a piece of hot metal and determine whether it's still hot enough or does it have to go back into the furnace to be reheat treated. Uh, yep. n- now, they, now they have these pyrometers that you point it. it's like a gun. You point it at the, uh, the hot uh, ingot and it tells yep. you automatically and uh, it uh, it can send information to other people and to the furnace, fire up the furnace because the goods are coming back. Uh, mm-hmm. All these things are good, but you're also losing that hands-on, artist and talent. Which is I agree. There's have. this
0: term. Yeah, there's I I'm, I'm also I, I sadly count myself as one of those gray hairs. i have got to say is as, as I originally learned it. If I if I uh, if I quenched an, a piece of oil hardening steel. For example, I knew enough to draw what we used to call drawing it back to straw, you know, right. to uh, – uh, uh, exactly, to eliminate that uh, – to take some of the hardness out, to, to at least get to soften the case a little bit so it didn't shatter like glass. Right. Now, that piece of information was very, very simple and direct, which is I know the color of straw is the color in which I need to stop eating that part, and I've, I've achieved the desired level of, of surface hardness. For so a machine right. to do that requires actual strict measurement of zones of temperature – integrate mm-hmm. those rooms of temperature and then and make a decision mathematically that way, which is a surprisingly complex process. So the real breakthrough, mm-hmm. I agree, may come when we get artificial intelligence that's smart enough that you can tell it, draw it back to straw, and it knows what you mean. As it stands right now, right. Uh, everything is brute force in the computer world. So you need vast amounts of data, and then you've got to process it with very, very sophisticated programs, often to come to conclusions that human beings can do in seconds. And that's just not efficient.
2: <laughs> no, that's for sure. That's, that's for sure. interesting,
1: Jim. One of the things that we allow our guests to do is shamelessly plug their organization. So, give us a couple of minutes <laughs> on Engineering.com.
0: <laughs> hey, thanks for the opportunity, Tim. Engineering.com is that we're a we're a global engineering news website. Essentially, so we include manufacturing in our coverage as well as as design. And all aspects of engineering, including some of the more interesting stories of developments in the engineering world around the world. Primarily U.S. coverage, but it is global in, in reach. Uh, we've uh, we've got pretty good penetration, about 2.3 million unique visitors a month. Two and a half million Facebook likes, so it's, we have an awful lot of people looking at this thing. And uh, we, we like to include the fun aspects of engineering, interesting designs, interesting new technologies that may or may not amount to something. Uh, right down to our, our hardcore manufacturing coverage, where we cover things like machine tools, uh, automation, quality control, quality assurance. This is something that's something that's always worth talking about. Uh, and uh, uh, market developments as well. So we uh, we attend trade shows. Uh, typically, we'll be on the floor at IMTS in Chicago. Uh, this fall, we'll be at FabTech in, in Las Vegas. And look forward to seeing some people uh, on the ground down there. And we're at yeah, www.engineering.com.
2: We expect to be at uh, FabTech in the, uh, uh, in uh, Las Vegas as well. Uh, I hope you have a good, strong social media. Uh, uh, activist in your company who's going to be social media in this uh, wonderful interview we've had with you.
0: <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to that. And, yes, we're we're an Internet-based company. Uh, there's no print product here. So social media actually involves full-time professionals who do nothing but that, and I will be delighted to do that.
2: <laughs> that would be wonderful. more people that get your message out, the better. Yeah, it's, it's just a it's a terrific thing.
1: Jim, we certainly uh, appreciate you you being on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Tim and Lou, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Thank you much. Thank you much. We've been talking with uh, Jim Anderson, who's the content director of engineering.com, about the machine tool industry and a number of other subjects. Uh, uh, Tune in next week for the show we have upcoming then, but we certainly enjoyed Jim having on the show. Uh, And that kind of wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio. This week, we'll be back again with you next week. Thanks for listening.
2: Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com.